This episode is brought to you by the movie Scrambled. It is heartfelt, hilarious, and in theaters February 2nd. We're going to explain more in a bit, but first, let's get into the episode. We spend a lot of time with the people we work with, more than almost anybody else. And nobody wants to be around people that aren't nice. If you're a diva or you think the world owes you something or you think that's going to get you more attention or more clout or more business, forget it. It's not going to work. People want to like the people that they're working with. And nice goes a long way. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice. And we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Today, our guest is Fern Malice. She's known as the godmother of fashion, and she's the woman who founded New York Fashion Week. Fern was the executive director for the Council of Fashion Designers of America for 10 years. And in that position, she created New York Fashion Week as it's known today. She went on to become the senior vice president of IMG Fashion for about another decade, where she helped expand Fashion Week to other cities around the country and around the globe. She's also the author of several books on the fashion industry and a philanthropist who's helped raise millions of dollars for causes including breast cancer and HIV AIDS. Fern, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for for joining us today. So before we get into the conversation, we like to do a little warm up, lightning round, quick questions, quick answers. You ready? I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sound too excited, Fern. Okay. What is the very first job you got paid for? The very first job I got paid for, I worked at Simplicity Patterns when I was in college and I got paid for that. What is a fashion trend that haunts you all these years later? You know, I'm I'm kind of sick of corsets. I mean, just really tight. They're not comfortable. Sending your bazooms up to your chin. What is a particularly traumatic or haunting Fashion Week story that no one would know about? Like, did someone not show up? Well, there was one where this woman named Zelda, who was in her 80s, I think, maybe even her 90s, was a huge fashionista, actually had a heart attack in the front row and (gasps) died at the fashion show, and they had to take her out. No. Oh, my God. That that was pretty traumatic. Oh, gosh. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, R.I.P. Zelda. Oh, my gosh. Um, Okay, what is... And then there were also some of the days of PETA when they were really in their prime, where they threw paint on the runway, really destroyed... Lots of people's property, and it was a nightmare for our security to get them out of the tents. What is your favorite fictional movie about the fashion industry? I guess it's not fictional. I mean, Unzipped is my favorite movie, I think, about the fashion industry. But Isaac Mizrahi's show. Most worn thing in your closet? In the last couple of years, it's my very nicely thin pile-lined zip-up boots from Manolo that are the most comfortable boots I've ever had in my life, and I wear them all the time. They sound lovely. Okay, last lightning round question. Who's the last person you texted? Actually, Jane Huddis. Oh, 
And Shane is who, I mean, obviously we've known about you for a long time, but one of our favorite parts of this show that's, that's going to come for you is uh, who's someone you would recommend to be on the show next. And Jane recommended you. Which is great. She was, she worked for me for six years before she went back to graduate school. So she was my right arm and assistant and we worked together a long time ago. That's a good segue because Jane talked about how she kind of got her start. So let's take it way back to your start. Tell us about how fashion was a part of your life, if at all, growing up. And how did it become something that, you know, your career has been synonymous with? How did it all start? It started because my dad worked in the garment district. He was a salesman for women's scarves. And I probably know how to tie a scarf 8,000 ways and have the biggest scarf shawl collection you've ever seen. But he was, and I say this affectionately, a garmento, you know, one of the old time garmento people. He and both of his brothers worked in the industry, one in textiles and one in sportswear. And any chance I got to be off a day from school or a holiday, I loved going to work with him. We'd take the bus. I lived in Brooklyn in an area called Mill Basin and took the bus in and then took the subway with him to work. And I'd watch him work in the showroom with the buyers and the fashion directors of the various stores that he was selling to. And these salesmen in those days were just charming. They had every good joke in the world. They knew how to entertain their customers, their clients. And I'd go to lunch with him and his buyers and learn how to order nice food and nice restaurants and you know, they'd have a Bloody Mary and I'd have a Virgin Mary <laughs> and just have a wonderful time. And I loved, loved being in the art department behind the scenes. These were women who were designing all these scarves. And I'm talking about intricate paisley patterns. And this is way before anybody had computers or CAD programs. They were painting all of them. And they had tables with hundreds of little bottles of ink of every color and paint in the world. And they were just, I loved hanging out with them. And I saw that these were careers that women could have. And his buyers and the fashion director of the stores all loved my dad. And I said, this is cool. That's how it started. What's the best piece of advice you got from him? Actually, one of the things that he's said through the years that has always stayed with me is, no two people should have to worry about the same thing. That is great advice. And so when I was like in the tents and things were going crazy, you know, people would say, I'm not worrying about it. I, I've paid people to worry about that. I mean, it, it was just wasted energy. That is really great operational advice. I love that. I'm going to I'm going to borrow that from your dad. You can use it. Thank you. And he also told me to never have more than one martini if you drink. <laughs> I don't know if I agree with you on that advice. Second one will put you over the, you know. <laughs> I'm only going to stick with the first piece of advice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, but we're talking to you in January. It's time of year where everyone, you know, makes resolutions, big plans, their five-year plan. There's a lot of career mapping that happens. Very popular with like millennials and Gen Z. Something that struck me in reading about your background and story was that you never had a career plan. <laughs> you were kind of the opposite of that. And so I'm curious, when you look back on what you've accomplished, what do you think the benefit of not having a plan was? Well, I guess the end result of what I've done and become is the benefit of it. I mean, I think people who hold themselves to rigid plans, you know, are just rigid. And I think you have to flow with it. You have to be open to opportunities. 
and you never know when they're going to come and where they come from. And I just always believed you just do a good job. You do the best job possible and people will recognize that somehow. And when I, early in my career, did the best job possible at Mademoiselle Magazine, where I started my career by winning a contest, I knew it was time to move on, that my boss was never going to promote me and she was just a little too competitive. And so I moved on. And there were times when I didn't know what I was going to do next, but I just rolled with it. Pretty good at reinventing and making something out of a situation and just diving in and helping somebody do something and it turns into something more meaningful. When you look back at kind of all the roles that you've had, what's been the most surprising that you're like, wow, like I would have really missed that one had I been so rigid? One of the things was getting the position at the CFDA. That was really out of left field. I had just left a job where I was senior vice president of advertising and marketing at the International Design Center in New York, a big interior design architecture center in Long Island City, where I spent a great deal of my time was in that industry before I switched back into the fashion world. When it was a recession and I was fired, and you know, they let all the creative people go, which I to this day think is always a mistake. Don't let the creative people go, let the business people go. You know, because I mean we're the ones who keep the messaging out there. In any case, I I again rolled with it, took on a temporary position in a PR firm in New York, came in with my triple Rolodex, which is, you know, an archive now. I should have it bronzed or something. <laughs> I still have it in my garage. I was gonna um, say, is it on your desk? Oh, that wouldn't even fit on my desk. <laughs> And and it would be too depressing because there's so many, unfortunately, dead people in it. You know, that that's really would be the saddest part about it. Um, but it is a story of your life when you look through that. I watched how the CFDA was looking for a new executive director. And I mean, I, I don't know if this is answering the question or not. But no, it is. It is. I threw my hat in the ring, called old friends who had some contacts. And the, the PR firm I was working for was doing pro bono work for the CFDA at the time. And so I said, maybe I should go up for that job. And they said, well, call Donna Karen. And I said, yeah, I got to call Donna Karen. Like she's going to take my phone call. And then they came back to me and said, actually, the search committee is Stan Herman and Monica Tilly. Monica was a great swimwear designer and activewear. And Stan Herman was a, a uniform designer. And I said, oh, my God, I met Stan Herman when I was a Mademoiselle guest editor. 20 years earlier, we went to interview him. You know, so, I mean, for me, all those things always, mm -hmm. things come full circle all the time in my life and career. People come back into it. In any case, I threw in my resume at the last minute. They had made a decision with their five finalists. They were ready to pick one of them. And I kind of swept in right under the rug. They saw my resume and they said, when can you come in? was a Friday, come in on Monday, and I did. I had an interview with Stan and Monica. By Wednesday, I was at the next meeting with Calvin Klein and Bill Blass and Carolyn Rome. And, you know, they said to me, and I knew Calvin from Parties of Fire Island and stuff like that. And Bill Blass looked like my dad, so I was comfortable with that. <laughs> and they said, you know, why should we hire you? You haven't been in fashion in 10 years. You've been in all this other industry and design and architecture. And I said, I never stopped wearing clothes. So they all cracked up. And I said, I never stopped shopping. 
when I never stop reading magazines and it's in my DNA. And so I was selected. I got the job and the rest is history, one could say. So let's let's talk about that history. How did you realize there was an opportunity around New York Fashion Week? What was the origin story? Well, when I took this position, it was never discussed in any of the interviews that we want to have an organized fashion week. I took the position. I immediately said we need to change the office and move it from the this little like closet behind the freight elevators in 1412 Broadway to an office that says this is the headquarters of the American fashion industry. I mean, I had to get up from my desk to answer the phone. It was just a bank of file cabinets. It was a nightmare. So we did that, organized the new office, got ready to rumble. But the week before I started, it was market week, fashion week in New York. And if there were 50 shows, they were in 50 different locations. Nobody talked to each other. You know, if somebody had a show at the plaza in the morning, you'd have to strike all the sets, everything down, because somebody was having a bar mitzvah there that night. You know, and if somebody wanted a show the next day, they had to put it all back in. People were doing shows in their showrooms at 557th Avenue, which, if the fire department knew, would have shut them down in a nanosecond. It was like a rave. There was no space for aisles, no fire egress, nothing. I mean, they were a disaster. It was actually scary. So in any case, the scariest show was Michael Kors had a show in an empty concrete loft space down in Chelsea. And the seats were very close together. The runway was zigzagged around the room. And if you've ever been to a fashion show, you turn on the bass music. It is so loud, everything shakes. Well, the ceiling shook. Oh my God. Literally shook. Chunks of plaster started to crumble and fall on the runway onto Cindy and Naomi and Linda. And they kind of brushed it off and kept walking. But when chunks of plaster landed in the laps in the front row of Susie Menkes from the International Herald Tribune and Carrie Donovan, who was the fashion critic for the New York Times, and apparently a piece of the plaster broke her Chanel lipstick that was in her bag, oh which was a color that was discontinued. So I, I only heard about that years later. But they wrote the next day, we live for fashion. We don't want to die for it. And I said, oh my gosh, I think my job description just changed. And it literally became the first thing that I tackled uh, besides moving the office into a nice space was to find safe, sound places that could hold fashion shows. It's so interesting in hearing you tell that story because the moving the office part to me is about projecting the vision, the creativity of what you wanted it to be known for. And when you talk through the creation of New York Fashion Week, it was really out of safety, efficiency, organization. When you look back now, do you consider yourself as, you know, a, a businesswoman, an executive, someone that is more creative or more on the kind of operating side? I think it's a healthy combination of both. It's also one of the first things I did was bring in my very dear friend, Michael Beirut, who was a partner at Pentagram. And I got him to redesign the logo of CFDA because it was something that somebody had done in the computer. I and mean, it was just nothing. And so Michael designed that iconic logo with the red F in the middle. It was so right on as a logo. So, I mean, that was a business decision, but it was a creative decision to get the best people to do the things that would advance what we needed to do. 
But I was always very practical. Even when the tents would go up, I was the one who would walk around and say, I need more garbage pails. People would look at me like I'm crazy. I said, people, there's gar- <laughs> you know, you need garbage pails everywhere. No, the signage is too low. If there's a crowd here, you can't read where the arrow is to which venue. Think airport. Let's make it higher so people can see where they're going. Things like that always were something that I was doing. People hated it at the beginning when I wore headphones at the tents. Because all the tents people, all the workers, all the captains, everybody had headphones. And so when I had them, I could listen to everything that was going on. And they were like, get Fern off the headphones. Get her off the headphones. So then I had an assistant who would have headphones and trail around with me and let me know what was going on. Because I'd say, no, 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 don't do that. Stop. You can only worry about one thing. There you go. (laughs) So on this show, we talk to so many different women about building a career and the life that they love and that works for them and how important it is to see different portrayals of women who are creating success on their own terms. Well, if you are wondering what Scrambled is about... Let me tell you, it has to do with eggs and not the kind you're thinking. So Scrambled follows quintessential eternal bridesmaid Nellie Robinson as she finds herself running between weddings, baby showers, bad dates, all the things that we are all familiar with. Well, then she starts to feel like the clock is ticking and decides to freeze her eggs and move her life forward on her own terms. It is written, directed by, and stars Leah McKendrick, who is one of IndieWire's top female filmmakers to watch this year. It is a heartfelt and hilarious journey of self-discovery and self-love, two things we love to talk about on this show. And it's in theaters this Friday. Catch Scrambled Rated R at a theater near you starting February 2nd. So you have said before that like your best piece of advice is to be nice. I don't know much about the fashion industry other than like Double Wears Prada and reading a lot of the the magazines that you've referenced. But I would say fashion industry does not have the reputation of just be nice. I, I would just love your thoughts on that. Like, did you feel that you were personally affected by some of the stereotypes in the fashion industry? Is that where that advice comes from? Or like, how did you kind of navigate that? Well, A little bit I felt affected by it. A lot of people thought I was really tough and that I was really a bully and they were terrified of me, which is not the case. I actually am nice and I'm much friendlier than most people know. I will stop and talk to everybody who comes up to talk to me. I'll stop and take a picture with people. I have found in my career that being nice helps and makes a difference. And people would then come up to me and say, you're so nice. I can't believe it. I didn't expect that. And that's one of the best compliments you could get. But that advice, as it came out of my mouth and crystallized for me, was when we were doing 7th on 6th, and it was IMG still owned Fashion Week. We had left, after the CFDA for 10 years, we sold Fashion Week to IMG. And we had offices on the west side of West 45th Street. And Tim Gunn brought the four finalists from Project Runway to the office. And it was a big deal. Being on Project Runway at that time was the hottest show. Everybody loved it. The episodes hadn't aired yet. So when the four finalists came into my conference room, I didn't know who was the snarky one, who was the clever one, who was the really talented one. 
And I said to them, okay, well, welcome to Fashion Week, 7.6, IMG. I said, what can I tell you? What would you like to know? You want to hear about designers? You want to hear about Fashion Week? And the snarky one said, well, what advice would you give us as designers starting out in the industry? What's the best advice? And so I just looked at them and I said, be nice. And they looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> Tim Gunn stood in the back with his arms going, yes, yes. And that just stayed with me. I said to them, you know, you're all competing with each other and you're going to go out into the workforce competing with a lot of talented people. We spend a lot of time at work with the people we work with more than almost anybody else. And nobody wants to be around people that aren't nice. If you're a diva or you think the world owes you something or you think that's going to get you more attention or more clout or more business, forget it. It's not going to work. People want to like the people that they're working with. And nice goes a long way. And so that became like a mantra for me. And when that episode aired on the TV months later, I was coming out of a screening for some movie and Sarah Jessica Parker was coming out. And she looked at me, she said, Oh my God, I love the advice you gave. And that was the best advice I've ever heard on the show. I was like, thank you. <laughs> and so I continue to say, be nice. Doesn't hurt. So you left IMG, who had taken over Fashion Week uh, in 2010. How did you decide it was time to move on? Well, things had started to change over the last few years of my reign there. Management changed a lot. Some of the people running the show. And EBITDA was the word you heard in the corridor every day. Not design, not talent, not what can we do better. It was about EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. I was sick of that word. And it became more about making the sponsors happy and selling sponsorships to make more money for Fashion Week. It was less about the creative designers, which is why we created Fashion Week in the first place. And that just started to make me crazy over the last few years. And then when the move happened where we were finally being forced out of Bryant Park after 19 years there, and it was always a contentious relationship with Bryant Park. As much as we loved being in that park, it was a massive undertaking to build the tents in Bryant Park. But like everything else, things come to an end. It was time to move on. We wound up working with Lincoln Center because they, at that time, were involved in a new capital campaign to raise money for Lincoln Center, with all the new changes they did there. And I think the Lincoln Center management saw the fashion industry as a cash cow. Oh, fashion's coming in here. We could make a lot of money off the fashion industry. So we arranged to build our tents in the back corner. And that necessitated cutting down a couple of trees, which in New York, you could kill a person and it wouldn't bother people as much as cutting a tree down. It was a massive project. And the tents kind of looked institutional to me. The venues were beautiful but they were far away from each other. The lobby was huge because now they were able to have way more sponsors than we could ever get in the front of Bryant Park. So it was a, just a shifted mentality. And I saw all that coming. I mean, I saw that memos were going, that used to go to three people were going to 30 people. Every constituency, every theater, every executive at Lincoln Center had a sign off on everything that was happening. And I said, this is, not fun anymore. I think clearly Brian Park was my baby. It's moving. Somebody else could take it over. 
and I worked at my agreement to leave. And uh, it was the best decision I made. The timing was perfect. And that's when it was time for me to really reflect and, you know, reinvent. So I did that. I took that year off and I spent time at my house in Southampton, which previous to that was only ever for a long weekend or a vacation. And I thought, wow, I really enjoy this place. So that brings us to, since you've left IMG, you've taken on a ton of projects. We talked about many of them in the intro. What have been some of the things that you felt like you've had the most fun working on? Well, one of the things that I did was truly an out-of-body experience, and I don't think I'll ever do it again. I was in an off-Broadway play, in a love loss in what I wore, with Daryl Roth produced, and it was Nora and Delia Ephron who wrote the, who elaborated on this little book that, oh my gosh, what's her name, did the book. She's fabulous. Eileen Beckerman was her name. It's a cute sketch of an outfit, and there was a little story about it. Oh, this is what I wore when I met Johnny and my first kiss in that dress. Here's the dress I wore to my mom's funeral. And it was the first time I wore something black. Every outfit had a story. And we all have stories. I mean, if you all go through your closets, you you remember you bought that at some place for some reason at some occasion or when you wore it. And if somebody commented on it, our clothing has history. And so this play, Nora and Delia, took her stories and elaborated them into more creative stories, creating characters and people around them. And it was a play that was running off-Broadway for several years. It was always an ensemble cast of five women sitting with a music stand on the stage with the script in front of us and a loose leaf. And I met Daryl and I knew her. And then one of her assistant producers called me and said, we want to add somebody from fashion into this. They had, I think, previous season had added Stacey London, and that it brought another whole audience to the theater. So they asked me who did I think would be good. So I, I was going through a hundred names with them. What about this one and this editor? What about this designer? What about this stylist? And then nothing seemed to gel. And then one day I said, I don't even know how I said it, but I said, What about me? And he said, Are you kidding? Would you even consider it? And I said, Well, maybe. So they said, we're going to check with Daryl. They said, oh, we would love it if Fern did it. And so they sent me a couple of paragraphs of a character in the play. And they said, you have to come in for an audition that everybody from Rita, who's married to Rita Wilson, Wilson, Rhea Perlman, I mean, you name it, everybody's been in that play. And they all had an audition. So I went to the theater. The director was there. It was me. And an intern who was helping me. And I did the piece and I had to cry and, wow. you know, laugh. And, all. and she said, oh my God, do this a little more. Yeah, absolutely. You'd be perfect. So I signed up for a month to do it. It was like a little over three weeks, actually. And it's exhausting because you're there every day, twice a week, there's matinees, so you two performances. The dressing room was, I mean, the smallest, tiniest place you've ever seen. And Lilius White was one of the other actresses in it who's in Hades Town and Kathy Lee, who had been married to Billy Joel, was new to it. She was doing it with me. And they couldn't have been sweeter and more wonderful. We all had little black dresses that we wore. And I got the CFDA to, you know, all buy tickets and got lots of people to come. And it was a hoot. 
I really had a terrific time, but I will never do it again. So that's the second story you've told in this podcast of you just saying, well, what about me? Maybe I'll just throw my hat in the ring. Is there something that you are thinking about throwing your hat in the ring for still that you haven't done yet? There are, there are a few interesting things coming up. I think 2024 is going to be a very interesting year for me. We're going to an event at the end of the week that CCTV is doing for Chinese New Year's that's going to be broadcast apparently to 880 million people over Chinese New Year's. And somebody who was in my office who worked for Alibaba mentioned it to her. She goes, oh, my God, that event is the Super Bowl, the Met Gala, and the Oscars rolled into one. Wow. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I'm a special guest at that. Amazing. And there's something in the Middle East that we're working on. And I've just met with Rizzoli to talk about doing book three. So I've been You've late been busy. on that. <laughs> Because I've, I've done 63, 64 interviews. Wow. And I have like maybe 30 that still haven't made it into a book. Well, I think that actually is a good segue to one of our final questions, which is so much of what you've shared today is about relationships and relationship building, going back to your Rolodex that's sitting in a garage somewhere. And I should say this is a, a question from our newsletter audience. And what they really want to know is, you know, how do you make connections in a new industry? Well. It certainly depends on the industry. Certainly for me in the fashion industry and fashion and beauty and design and lifestyle, there are a thousand events. I mean, everything is about launching a new product or introducing a new something. And so there's always a cocktail party. There's always an opening. There's always a release. And you have to work and get invited to them. And when you go to those, you have to talk to people, collect business cards if they still have them. But I, for years, when I worked in offices and had a staff and a lot of people around me, it was would shock me because I would get so many invitations and I couldn't go to everything. And I'd say, who wants to go to this event? And half the people would go, oh, I've got a yoga class. Oh, I've got to go home and walk my dog. No, I don't really feel great tonight. No. And I'd say, you're crazy. This is how you build up your contacts and your networks. And that's how you learn. I have a good friend who I'm still very friendly with, who's always worked with me on various projects for the years who have always hired her. And she used to say, I go to events with Fern and walk in her wake and collect the business cards. And she would stay in touch with all these people constantly. I think she still knows the sponsors from Fashion Week 20 years ago and knows where they are and what they're doing. You have to do that. It doesn't happen sitting home on a computer. You know, I mean, I love Zoom calls and all the virtual events and things people do, but you see names and then you don't even have enough time to find out in a chat room how to reach them. You know, well, who are they? It's, I like what that person said. I'd like to follow up with them. But go to events, go to lectures and talks and seminars, business conferences, get out of your apartment and out of your place, get away from the computer. Get off the phone for 10 minutes. The phone is our best and worst enemy. You know, you go in an elevator or a restaurant, anywhere. You used to be able to talk to people. You'd make eye contact. Now you go in and everybody's head is down in their palm of their hand. So you have to make an effort and just do it. You have to be fearless. What's the worst that can happen? Somebody's not nice? So you move on. 
Last question. Who's someone else we should have on the show? I was thinking you should have the artist Ashley Longshore. I love Ashley. That is a great great one. We have not had her on. Ashley's a really dear friend of mine. I love Ashley. That would be a great idea. You'll be laughing the whole time. You'll have to make sure she keeps her clothes on. Um, (laughs) Well, it's a podcast, so it's fine. Oh, that's right. It's about you won't see her. But she's a hoot. She's opened up this past year a gallery in Crosby Street. And I think you'd have a a fun time with her. That's a great idea. Thank you, Fern. Fern, we are going to follow up about that, getting Ashley on. Thank you so much. We've loved hearing about everything you've done. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. I enjoyed doing this. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise. <laughs>